You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Great. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Um, it's my first time preaching in, at St. Pete's, but not in St. Pete's, if you can get what I mean. I was here for the carol service, uh, recognised some faces from uh, back in the autumn, and we uh, saw this place packed out. It was a great opportunity back uh, last month, and it's great to be back and looking forward to the week ahead. And uh, thank you so much to David and the church here for inviting me to uh, speak this evening. It's a real privilege to be here and to share with you. And I'd like us to turn to Act 17 um, this evening. We're going to look at the second half of this chapter, and I'll read uh, from Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, "May we know what this teaching is that you are present? This new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean." All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, "People of Athens." I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray now, whoever we are, that you would speak to us, and that you would open our the eyes of our hearts to see and to hear and to respond to what you have to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm really excited about this week coming up. I'm very excited for the mission week. It's the first mission week of the the season at the university. This is the kind of time of year where universities all over Britain will be organizing events like this. And uh, for those of you that are students, I hope you're excited too. And even if you're not a student, part of the church here, I hope you're excited as you uh, pray for and uh, see what happens And we're trusting that actually some of the fruit of that will be evident here um, in your church as well as the other churches across um, Dundee in the weeks to come. But I wonder what uh, you would expect to happen on a week like this. I wonder what your expectations are as the students go out and invite people in and organize events and share Jesus uh, with their friends I guess I find that people kind of split into two kind of opposite categories. You have the overly optimistic types who um, are very excited because they think that we'll see maybe 100,000 people converted, even though there aren't that many students at the university. And they think it's going to be absolutely wonderful. And they'll probably be a bit discouraged by Tuesday morning when it hasn't all happened yet. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the overly pessimistic And to be honest, they would probably be thinking that nothing of any value is really going to happen. And we do it because we're meant to, and we do it because we have to be faithful, but we don't really expect um, much to really happen. But we'll tick the box to say we've done it. Uh, We've been faithful, and that's it. I wonder what your expectations are. Those are the opposite extremes. But what was the response in Athens? Well, we'll do something strange. We'll start at the end. What was the response to Paul when he went to this city? Uh, Very similar in many ways um, to the cities of the UK today. And we see that there was a threefold response there at the end, verse 32. Three different responses uh, to Paul sharing the gospel in the city. The first response is that some people mocked. They laughed. And we'll get that this week, I'm sure. Um, Some people will hear about Jesus and they'll think that this is just a big joke. How can you believe that? You call yourself clever. What's that got to do uh, in a university? People mock. It will happen. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And we shouldn't give up when it happens. You know, it doesn't just happen to students, does it? Uh, For all of us, as we try and share Jesus, we'll often face that kind of mocking ridicule from time to time. And we can feel tempted to think it's something to do with us, can't we? If only... I was a better speaker. If only I had the answers that David has, uh, then I would be able to see people uh, respond more positively. And yet Paul was a pretty good evangelist and people mocked him. Jesus is God and not everyone responded positively when he preached. And so I always say to people, if you want a 100% positive response, you want to be more successful than Jesus, good luck. We will sometimes get negative reactions. Don't give up when it happens. Expect it. 
But don't assume it will always be negative. I think sometimes we can kind of brace ourselves, can't we, all the time thinking that everyone is going to be negative. Uh, Dick shared how the kind of expectations of some of the Christians was incredibly low this weekend, uh, that people didn't think that anyone would be interested. And I love the surprises that you might get along the way. I was down in Preston speaking at a similar events week a couple of years ago. And the lunchtime events uh, were held in a very public room in the student union, which meant a lot of people were just were passing through at the back, would stop and listen for a while on their way to lectures or to get lunch. And so a lot of people had seen what was going on. Later on that day, I was wandering across the, uh, the campus, and there was a group of lads, uh, quite hard-looking lads, um, in the corner of the um, courtyards. And one of them shouted out, Oi, you! Um, at which I kept walking, hoping that they weren't really thinking about me. And I kept walking and they shouted out again, Oi, you! And at this point I realised they probably were talking about me, so I turned around and innocently said, Me? And they said, Yes, you! Were you that guy speaking at lunchtime? And I thought, maybe this is the time to pretend it was my twin brother who was doing the talk by the look on his face. Uh, But I owned up and said, Yeah, it was me. And then he said to me, Can we talk more? It was brilliant and I'm really interested. (laughs) Now, I was expecting a mouthful from this guy. I was expecting the negative reaction. But it's not always negative. Because there's a second reaction, isn't there? Some people mocked and some people said, we want to know more. They weren't convinced, uh, but they were intrigued. And there'll be people like that this week at the university. And all of us might have friends that are like that. They're not going to be convinced the first time we share something about Jesus, but they might want to know more. That's why it was great on the video to see that uh, this week doesn't end on Friday. Uh, And very much this is just the beginning. And we need to continue that interest. But there was a third reaction too, wasn't there? Some people believed. Isn't that amazing? Paul was only in Athens, as we know, for a few days. Uh, He only did this one talk and had some discussions. And yet, there were people who believed. Do you think that this week, there will be those who can go from darkness to light? Those who will come to believe in Jesus? Absolutely, that can happen. And we're praying, expecting that to happen. Three different reactions in Athens. And I think as we pray and work this week in the university and as a church, you pray and share Jesus with people around you, we should expect all three reactions too. Well, we started at the end. Let's go back to the beginning. What was it that Paul did in the city to provoke and to produce that kind of response? What actually happens? Three things to notice. Firstly, notice his motivation What was Paul's motivation? Look back at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. In many senses, Paul wasn't really meant to be in Athens. He'd been in Thessalonica, up in northern Greece. He'd gone down to Berea. And in both contexts, he had been kicked out because of a riot. So he's in Athens waiting for his friends to come and he's going to go on to Corinth, just along a few miles along the coast. So he's just waiting. He's just on his own. It's interesting, by the way, that actually in the New Testament, I think there are only four occasions where we see people sharing the gospel on their own. Three of them are Jesus, so that's slightly unique. 
And the other one is Paul here. And he was waiting for his friends to turn up. On all the other occasions, people do it together as a team. And that's one of the joys of a week like this one ahead. We get to work together. And we've got team not only here from Dundee, not only from the wilds of England, uh, but we have uh, guys from Serbia that have come over to help this week as well. People from all over to come to be a team. But he was waiting for them and he was greatly distressed to see what? To see that the city was full of idols. I, I guess most of us, when we look around at Britain, at Scotland, at Dundee today, see things that distress us. We're distressed by things that we see around us. But what was it that distressed Paul most of all? Interestingly, it wasn't the immorality, and I'm sure there was plenty of that, but it was the idolatry that distressed him most. It was the cause behind the symptoms, as it were, that really distressed him. Here was a city where people were worshipping anything and everything except the living God. And that got to him. He didn't just look round like a tourist would look like round Athens, like I did the other year. But he saw deeper. Do we look in that same way? If you're a student, as you look out onto your campus tomorrow morning... As you go to work uh, tomorrow, do you look in the same way that Paul looked? Does it distress you? You see, Paul had two things. Firstly, he had a passion for God's glory. He was so overwhelmed by God's greatness and glory and goodness that when he saw people worshipping other things, it got to him. How can they worship these idols when I know the living God? We've got a passion for the glory of God that moves us when we see people worshipping other things. It was a missionary, Henry Martin, who said, I could not bear existence if Jesus Christ were not glorified. It would be hell to me if he was always dishonoured. Is Jesus so big in your hearts that it grieves you that he is not big in the hearts and lives of others? Paul had a passion for God's glory that motivated him. But linked to that, he also had a compassion for people. A passion for God's glory, a compassion for people. You see, he knew it was not only right that people should worship God, he also knew it was best that people should worship God. He looked at people who were lost, living for things and not living for God. And he knew how that would wreck their lives. And he knew where it would take them we got that compassion. Paul was motivated because he looked deeply around him. We need to look. His motivation. But secondly, notice his method. What did he actually do? He didn't just get moved. I guess many of us get moved um, in our emotions. But what did it lead him to do? Well, firstly, it said he went to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue, that was his normal method. Go to those who already believed in God, those who had some understanding, those who were already a bit interested. And we'll meet people like that uh, this week. Uh, we may know people like that who are a little bit interested already. But he didn't stop there, did he? He not only went to those who were already interested, but he also went to the marketplace and he spoke to, verse 17, those who happened to be there. I love that little expression, those who happen to be there. That sounds very random, doesn't it? 
happen to be there. And this week we'll be handing out flyers and doing surveys and questionnaires with people who just happen to be there. And yet, in God's sovereignty, the people who happen to be there might happen to be there for a reason. Let me tell you one story. We, we did a, a week like this in Norway, um, up in the town of uh, uh, Volda. Tiny little town with a very small university of about 2,000 students up on the west coast of Norway. And uh, as we will this week, we were handing out invitations and meeting students during the morning. And it often does feel a bit random. You don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know who's going to be there. Some people don't seem to show much interest. Other people say they'll come, they won't, and so on. We were handing out leaflets. And during that time, we met a student from China. His name, uh, he said, was Yang Song. uh, But he said, you can call me Johnson. So we did. And uh, we told him about the events. And we said that we were from the Christian Union. He said, Christian, what's that? And so we explained a little bit, and he said, I've never met a Christian, and I've never heard anything of Christianity. Uh, But he said, I'm intrigued. So he came along to the lunchtime event. He listened. He asked questions. He came that night. He listened. He asked questions. And he came back every day for five days uh, to each of the talks. By the final night, uh, he said, I can't come tonight because I've been invited to a party with my friends. So I said, well, just come for the beginning and then go to the party. And he said, oh, okay. But he didn't go to the party at all. He stayed for the whole evening. Uh, But he came and he listened. And then he came to ask questions. But his question that night was this. He simply said, listen, you've been talking about how we can know God personally. How can I know God personally? And I said to him, would you like to? He said, I would love to. And so we sat at the back of this canteen there in Norway. And we prayed together as Johnson uh, entrusted his life to Jesus Christ. And afterwards, because I was leaving the next day, I was keen to introduce him to one of the staff workers, the guy who was going to be around. And so I introduced him, and he just happened in a stash of books to have a Bible in Mandarin that he was able to give to him. So they were chatting away, and he gave this Bible uh, to my friend Johnson and said, um, now this is a Bible, it's in your language. He said, but there may be some words in it that you won't necessarily understand because they're more Christian words that you may not have come across. He said, for instance, I had a friend who hadn't heard of the word grace. To which Johnson said, oh, like amazing grace. And my friend said, yes, But how have you heard of amazing grace? I thought you had never met Christians before. He said, oh, when I was back in China, I was in my music class at high school. And my teacher said that we had to pick a song, any song, listen to it, and then write an essay about how it made us feel. So I googled popular songs, and I found this song called Amazing Grace. And he said, for some reason, I couldn't stop listening to it. But I didn't know why. And when I told my teacher I was going to write about this song, my teacher told me it was a very bad song that I wasn't allowed to listen to, and I really didn't know why it was a bad song. And he didn't know it was a Christian song, because as you may have noticed, Amazing Grace doesn't actually mention God or Jesus. It's often why it's sung in secular settings. But he said, I could never forget the words of that song. Have you ever thought how amazing that is, that God had used a song in a class set by an atheist professor back in China to prepare the heart of a Chinese student who would move to Norway and listen to some talks by an Englishman to bring him to Christ. They just happened to be there. 
But sometimes the people that just happen to be there might be there for a reason. And I think that should fill us with a big sense of excitement and expectation as we step out this week into whatever context we're in. So he went to the Jews, he went to the Greeks, he went to the marketplace, and then he went to the Areopagus, uh, which was really an invitation. And it was a place where people would go and debate and discuss. That's where the philosophers were. And as I said, I was in Athens as a tourist the other year. And so I went to the Areopagus, and we can have a picture of it on the screen. Um, There we are. There's me eating a Mars bar on Mars Hill. Um, Because I thought that would be fun. Uh, But there you go, there's Mars Hill. And he got to speak and share the gospel. It's just a lump of rock now that's incredibly shiny because everyone goes up there and you fall over quite easily. But he went to preach there. He went to whoever happened to be there. He went to the Areopagus as well. Thank you. His method. Well, what did he say there? Thirdly, his message. What did Paul say in the city? Well, we're not going to look. There have been books written about this message and we haven't got time to look at it all, but... A few points to notice. Firstly, he started with a common point of contact. He said, look, I've spotted this idol to an unknown God. He'd obviously been looking carefully at what was going on. And he used this idol as a point of contact to share the gospel. Now, we won't do that. But there are all sorts of points of contact that we can use to bring up the gospel and to speak about, to speak about Jesus. One of the ways that we'll be doing it this week is to take the objections that people have and using people's objections as opportunities. I don't know whether you think of them in that way, but actually the growing hostility that we find in this country today to the gospel is, in a sense, an opportunity, a point of contact that we can use to start to speak about Jesus. And we'll be doing that each day as the questions that people have will be the starting point of our talks about the gospel He started with a point of contact. He didn't assume any background knowledge. Now, this is interesting because if you read through the book of Acts and look at all the other sermons and talks in the book of Acts, they basically say the same thing. Jesus died and rose again. So you need to repent and believe. And if you do, you'll have forgiveness and the gift of the spirits. Those three pairs come up again and again. Jesus' death and resurrection, repentance and faith, forgiveness and the gift of the spirits. And yet Paul goes to Athens And he seems to break with the protocol. He doesn't say what he says in all the other places. Why? Well, because the context is different. He's speaking in Athens. He's speaking to people who generally don't understand the Old Testament, who don't have the same concepts of God that he has. And so he explains the gospel by building first a context into which it comes. He talks about who God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the judge. In fact, when I stood there on Mars Hill and read Acts 17 several times to myself as I looked out over the city of Athens, one thing really struck me very forcefully. And that's uh, what he says here in verse 24. Um, He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And you stand there on Mars Hill and you look behind you um, at the Acropolis, this incredibly huge temple, one of the wonders of the world. And then you look across the city with all these temples dotted around and you think of Paul standing there saying, God doesn't live in those buildings. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. You've completely misunderstood who God is. He explains who God is. He explains the context. And we've got to do that, haven't we? 
Otherwise, the core of the gospel won't make sense. Then in Bournemouth, where I live, each summer we have a cafe for international students. And I led the team for a number of years in that cafe. I'll never forget one year we had a Japanese lady come uh, to this cafe. And during the evening, each evening, we'd have the opportunity for a Bible study. And she came eagerly um, to the Bible study. And after a couple of nights, one of the students who had been leading the Bible study announced to the rest of the team that this lady had entrusted her life to Jesus and become a Christian. Well, we rejoiced at this news, and we were excited to hear that. And so we put her in contact with a local Christian who was going to meet up with her. But after a few days, we kind of thought something wasn't quite right. We were told that they had entrusted their life to Jesus, they'd become a Christian, and yet it didn't seem to be making much of a difference in their life. So this local Christian decided to meet up, do Bible studies uh, with this lady, and they decided to start at the beginning. So they went to Genesis chapter 1, opened the Bibles together, and read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this lady looked at my friend and said, oh, my friend said, what? So there's only one God then? And she said, well, yes. And she said, oh, that's not what I thought. You see, this lady came from a background where there were many, many gods. And when she came to Britain and heard that there was a Christian God called Jesus, well, that wasn't a surprise. There were so many gods that it wasn't a surprise that there might have been one that she hadn't heard of. And the fact that Jesus had died for her so that she could be right with this Christian God, well, that was good news. Of course, she still had to keep in with all the other gods. So she'd heard the core of the gospel, Jesus died for you, without the context, and it didn't make sense. And that's why we need to make sure that people understand why the gospel is such good news. We need to explain the context. And then he illustrated it. He illustrated it by quoting their poets and their philosophers. And we're going to seek to explain it and illustrate it that way this week. But ultimately, he wanted to bring people to talk about Jesus. He may start where they're at, but his aim was to bring people to Jesus. And in particular, the resurrection. It's interesting, again, if you look at the book of Acts, the one thing that comes up in every sermon is the resurrection. It's the key. It's the linchpin. It's the foundation stone. Which is why, whenever I do a week like this, I always ask that the last evening, the subject is explicitly the resurrection of Jesus. Because it's what we want to build up to as the week goes on. It's the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, firstly, it answers three big intellectual questions, doesn't it? Does God exist? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there is a God who has got involved in history. Secondly, is there life after death? Since the death of David Bowie, everyone seems to assume so, at least when they talk about him. And the rest of the time we assume not. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there is. Which religion is the right one to follow? What about the one whose founder has an empty grave and is alive today? I would opt for that one, wouldn't you? Three big intellectual questions, but also three big existential questions the resurrection answers. Firstly, what do we do with our accusing past? What do we do with the rubbish and the muck of our lives? 
that's not only ruined our lives and separated us from others, but it separated us ultimately from God and caused us to be left alone and under his judgment ultimately. The resurrection says that the price of our guilt has been paid. It's like the receipts of the payments when you pay with a credit card. The receipt proves the payment has been accepted. The resurrection says that Jesus died for you and the payment was enough. The past can be wiped clean. The guilt can be dealt with. A connection with God can be restored. Our accusing past. What about our uncertain future? The resurrection of Jesus. It says, yes, there is a day that all of history is heading towards. Yes, a day of judgments. But not a judgment we need to fear if we've already met Jesus Christ. It's actually a future of certainty and hope that we can look forward to. Because we know one who's already been there and taken the sting of death. Our accusing past, our uncertain future. And thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus answers the question of our troubled presence. Can we really change? Can human nature change? Or are we just stuck being the way we are with our failings and our faults forever? The resurrection says real change is possible. Why? Because Paul, writing elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's now at work in those who believe. In other words, those who put their trust in this resurrected Jesus experience the same power in their lives that raised Jesus to life. Which means that we're not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, trying to be better people. But the power of God himself is in our lives, working and transforming us and changing us and giving us the power to become more like Jesus and giving us the power to face uncertain futures. The resurrection of Jesus does that. And so this week at the university, we're going to proclaim Jesus risen from the dead. And if you're a student here, I hope you're excited about that. I hope you're expectant for what is going to happen this week. Yes, there might be some mockery, but there might be other things too. And if you're not a student, in whatever situation you're going into, if you know and love Jesus, let's make him known. Let's look for those opportunities to speak about him. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, can I ask you what your response is? We've seen the response of people in Athens. What's your response to Jesus Christ? We all have one. No one is neutral when it comes to him. Might be that you're here and you're in that first category. You might be saying, well, actually, I think this is rubbish. I guess that's probably not the majority in an evening service at St. Pete's, but there's a chance that some people might think that. And we'll meet plenty of people like that this week. And my challenge to you would be, before you reject it, have you really investigated it? And do you know what it is you're rejecting? I often say to people, look, if my only understanding of the Christian faith really come mostly from the BBC, I certainly wouldn't be a Christian evangelist today. Investigate it for yourself. 
take one of the Gospels for a start, read through it. Maybe you're not in that situation, but maybe you're intrigued. But you're not there yet. You're confused. It doesn't make sense. You've got lots of questions. Well, keep finding out more. And there's loads of people here who would love to help you do that. Not only just coming to services, but to meet up and chat, to discuss, investigate. These things are too important to ignore. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, this is the most important thing of all. And it's worth checking it out until you come to a satisfactory conclusion. Maybe there's some people. Actually, if you're honest, you say, I've never yet believed. I've never put my trust in Jesus. But what's stopping you from doing it? You might say, I've got questions. That's fair enough. We've all got questions. But you don't need to wait until all your questions have been answered before you take that first step. You might say, well, I'm not certain. I'm not 100% sure. Well, there are very few things in life that we are 100% sure about. And there are very few things in life that are really important that we can actually prove. But I think, actually, let me put it this way. I think for some of you, it would be a bigger step to reject it than it would be to accept it, given what you know. Actually, it would be a bigger leap of faith to say that this whole load of thing is rubbish than to actually say, I'm going to start. I'm going to entrust my life to this Jesus. So can I challenge you, if you've not yet done that, what's stopping you? Trust him tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen from the dead. We thank you that we therefore know that you are real, that you are true. And we thank you that we can know personally that because of him, our past is forgiven, our future is certain, that you are with us today. Lord, I pray for any here who don't yet know and trust you, that they would come to trust you, to turn from trusting in themselves to trust you, Lord God, even today. And for those of us that do know and trust you, whether or not we're part of the CU or students, we pray that this week, whatever the week holds, that we would seek out and take those opportunities to speak of Jesus, who died and rose again, the only hope for this world. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org.
Thanks for listening.